Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. So far this week, Jeremy Corbyn has caused over 100,000 new members to join the UK Labour Party, which he leads, has apologized for a war he opposed from the very beginning, and appears to have survived a coup attempt on his leadership. And despite his backstabbing MPs, he's one of the few party leaders left standing after the UK's Brexit referendum. Given all this mayhem on the British political scene, I figured it would be a good time to speak with the writer Richard Seymour, author of the recently released book, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. Richard regularly publishes in major UK and international media, and his previous books include Against Austerity, Unhitched, and The Liberal Defense of Murder. He's long been one of the best left voices on British politics. Here's our feature conversation, which moved from the roots of Corbyn's sunrise to power, to the failure of today's Blairite coup plotters, and all the way to the prospects of a long-term shift in ideology affected by Corbynism. I've been meaning to interview about uh, interview you about your new book on Jeremy Corbyn for a while, um, and I, I guess you know in, in the meantime it's sort of shit has happened. But before we get to that, maybe you could just quickly lay out the main argument of your sure. book, sort of how you see the Corbyn phenomenon and its chances for success. Okay, well the question that the book starts out with is this. How can it be that the Labour Party has, for the first time in its history, a radical socialist leader when it has never had that before, when the left has been in a much stronger position? Right now, the left is historically weak. The Labour movement is historically weak. Strike rates are at an all-time low. Union density falls year on year. The uh, membership of left-wing organisations has been falling for decades. Um, Their evidence of militancy is nil. And yet... Jeremy Corbyn won by attracting hundreds of thousands of new members to the Labour Party, full members and supporters, by uh, attracting the support of all the major union leaders, or at least most of them, and by getting just enough nominations uh, from the uh, Parliamentary Party, and by attracting a raft of celebrity support. And when I talk about celebrity support, I'm not talking about the types of people who turn up at left-wing events, you know. I'm talking about uh, Daniel Radcliffe, the guy who played Harry Potter, people like that. Quite strange uh, sort of range of people. Basically, um, there was a, a unique kind of moment when there was a feeling that Labour had not done the job against the Conservatives and it needed to do something radical and different. And what you could say, broadly speaking, is that New Labour was the first attempt to remedy that crisis from the right by uh, changing the cultural and political habits of laborism by becoming more market-oriented, more business-minded, more media-savvy, and basically uh, gravitating very sharply to the centre, even to the centre-right. That was the first attempt to resolve labor's crisis. The result of it was briefly uh, a reconstitution of the labor vote, but actually a much deeper rot in the long term. Uh, We get to 2010, they've lost 5 million largely working class votes. And Ed Miliband is elected uh, as the Labour leader, uh, someone from the soft left. 
someone who um, the Blairites despised because they thought it was their turn. They thought that after the deviation of Gordon Brown, they were going to get the leadership again. Uh, and Miliband talks about regaining uh, those working class voters. His leadership ends up being beholden uh, to the party's right wing uh, to a great deal. Uh, and that means that while he does reconstitute some of the Labour Party's vote in England and Wales, he loses a huge amount of the vote in Scotland due to the um, uh, collaboration with the Conservatives in the Scottish independence referendum. Rather than having a distinctively Labour position, rather than setting out a cr critical position, uh, defending social democracy and all the rest of it, uh, Labour undercuts their own support and they lost Scotland in the 2015 election. Um, so, you know, you get to 2015, uh, basically all uh, parts of the Labour Party are fed up. So essentially, they come to 2015, they um, have tried everything, they haven't been able to do much about austerity, the cuts to the public sector, privatisation, any of the things that they care about. They haven't been able to stop the rightward drift within the Labour Party. And really, supporting Corbyn was the most radical thing they had done uh, to resist any of this. In fact, it's probably, you know, in terms of Labour Party politics, the most radical step they've ever taken. It is not in the history or the nature of the trade union leaders to ever back the most left-wing candidate. They've always backed the right-wing candidate, or at least a candidate from the party centre, uh, in exchange for some sort of quid pro quo. So this was a unique situation. But you have to contextualise this in a broader decline of parliamentary democracy, because for years now we've been seeing the, ind uh, the indices go down, uh, electoral turnout uh, going down party membership going down, party identification going down, and concomitantly, at the same time, uh, the leading actors within the dominant political party is retreating into the state, uh, becoming more and more dependent on the state and uh, its patronage and privileges for their power, rather than on their representative functions, rather than on winning votes. Essentially, there's this growing di disconnect between the mass of the population and the uh, organization of the state, uh, its representative functions, and relatedly, the media in its function as the representation of representation. The media brings us a picture of what we, condensed within parliament, are supposed to look like. It tells us what the arguments are about our public life and policies and the, the values that dominate our public life, and we're supposed to recognize ourselves that reflection and more and more people don't so one of the things that uh, you can say about corbyn uh, is that he intelligently exploited a crisis in politics and a crisis in representation and one of the ways in which they use social media uh, very intelligently was to um, tap into people's distrust of the mainstream media so that when the mainstream media went on the attack against Jeremy Corbyn, when they said, oh, he's an old radical, he's always been on the protests, he's always been on the picket lines, they, you know, their social media accounts, both official and unofficial, and there was quite a lot of them, found a, a number of memes, they produced memes and pictures showing that, in fact, yes, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is an old radical. He has indeed been on the picket lines. Look, here he is on the anti-apartheid demonstration. Here he is on a strike picket line. And... And making a virtue out of that, or if they made some stuff up about him in the press, they would contest it. And when you look at the um, 
uh, the votes within the Labour Party leadership, 57% of the people who voted depended on social media for their news. And that's the future. That's not the Britain of today, but that is the Britain of the future. So they intelligently um, exploited a series of uh, problems and crises in order to project influence way above and beyond the actual social depth, cohesion and organisation of the radical left. That's my broad interpretation of Corbynism. So this is, you know, this is basically a decades long crisis. And now we have a very, very acute political crisis um, in the UK after the Brexit referendum, after the vote to leave. Yeah. I mean, your book's only a few months old, but it's almost ready for a postscript or almost ready for a postscript. If you were to write a postscript or if you were to think about this really acute short term crisis, does it change anything? Would you add anything? Is is Corbyn being as adept in sort of exploiting this crisis and the sort of, I mean, one, the crisis in the UK and two, the crisis within the Labour Party, where his leadership has been uh, finally challenged, you know, by by the right in the in a very concrete way? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's important to say about um, Brexit and the crisis around it that the left had very little input into the outcome itself and the character of the outcome. So in principle, you could argue for uh, what some people called a left Brexit, right? But that was unworldly because the left wasn't anywhere in this debate. It didn't run any of these uh, campaigns. It wasn't leading the argument. Nobody heard these uh, uh, arguments for a left exit. Uh, the overwhelming argument for exit was let's get the immigrants out. Let's, um, uh, you know, uh, pull up the drawbridge. And um, it was a very nationalist, uh, parochial and racist uh, campaign. And in terms of its economic uh, aspiration, well, you have to come up with some sort of alternative to Europe if you're going to grow British capitalism. Half of the uh, trade of the UK economy is with Europe. So what are you going to do? Um, the UKIP types, the UK Independence Party and the hard right of the Conservative Party, both have an answer to this. They say, let's crawl into bed with the United States. If we could, we would join NAFTA. If we could, we'd become the 51st state. But let's, as a first step, get into TTIP uh, and uh, form those connections. And maybe also form some uh, client relationships with the former colonies, the uh, Commonwealth countries. And that's not a solution that the left wants to support. Obviously, um, the left is in a very difficult position. Jeremy Corbyn um, has been criticised since the outcome for not being sufficiently enthusiastic about Europe and for therefore undermining the referendum campaign to remain. Uh, if you remember, his, his position was a critical remain. It was remain but reform. The European Union is flawed. It's a free market club. It's a club for businessmen. It's not sufficiently democratic, but we want to stay in to preserve the basic rights that we got. And we want to stay in to preserve freedom of movement for labor. These are good things. And the thing about this is that Corbyn was elected on that agenda. He told people that was his position when he stood for the leadership of the Labour Party. Uh, yet uh, there has always been a sullen, truculent majority of the parliamentary Labour Party, probably about four-fifths, uh, probably about the same number that gave him a no-confidence vote recently, uh, who have been trying to make life difficult for him from the start. And I'll tell you this, a few weeks before the referendum, I was talking to Labour Party activists uh, up in Middlesbrough, and they knew that this coup was coming. 
I mean, they weren't the first to mention it, but they were the ones who had the most detailed analysis. They knew the coup was coming, no matter what the result was, in the days after the referendum, they were going to go after Jeremy Corbyn. And I said, surely not. That would be mad. They don't have uh, a sufficient argument against him. It's premature. Uh, there isn't a crisis of his leadership. He's not been too... Pardon me. He's not been doing too badly. Turned out they were right. Uh, now, the coup has been premature. They don't have a strategy. They haven't got a candidate they agree on. They don't have any policies they're agreed on. The only thing they're agreed on is they want to get Corbyn out. Um, so uh, they've used this uh, argument about Brexit, about Corbyn not being satisfactorily pro-Remain to justify the coup. But in essence, it's also contradictory because they claim that Corbyn will not allow them to make critical comments about immigration. Now, if you're for EU membership, and if you want to say you're euphoric about the EU, you cannot come out against integration because the whole point of the European Union, or at least one of its major points, is that it is a block in which there is a free movement of capital and a free movement of labour. You can't be anti-immigration if you're in favour of uh, the European Union. The only way you can do it is to be rhetorically anti-immigration. And what that does, of course, is it fuels the far right because it pushes their obsessions and concerns up the agenda. It legitimizes them without doing anything about them. Obviously, that's contradictory. Their case against Corbyn doesn't add up. Um, but that's essentially what they want. They want to uh, try to woo uh, working class voters by being a bit more racist. They think that's what will win them over. Obviously, it hasn't worked before. They've tried it for years. Ed Miliband tried it. The Blairites tried it. It's never worked before because people know when they're being patronized and people know when they're being lied to and people don't like it. Um, what they prefer is uh, the real Armani. So if they want racism, they can go to UKIP. They can go to the Tories. They don't need the Labour Party to offer them that agenda. So um, I would just say that Jeremy Corbyn has done the best he could with a very, very weak hand. Like I say, he was propelled to power without there being a very strong left wing uh, surrounding the party or surrounding him. And he's done the best he could. Uh, he's been surrounded by a belligerent opposition from the start. And he's now in a situation where the best he can do is to brazen it out to essentially say to the coup plotters, if you want to get me out, stand somebody, find a candidate, agree on an agenda and stand against me because you're not going to win. Now, of course, that may be complacent because they might actually find a way to win. They might uh, cause sufficient uh, demoralization and despair among rank and file members and among sections of the soft left, uh, which is already beginning to happen to some extent. They might do that. Um, but at the moment... All the signs are that they don't want to stand against him because they're frightened they're going to lose. And that's why they're in the papers every day begging him to do the right thing for the party and stand down. As if as if they might not do the right thing for the party and shut the fuck up. <laughs> right now it seems almost... It really seems like a lot of what the coup plotters um, have done has sort of fizzled. I don't know if you see Corbyn still at the head of the Labour Party in six months. Uh, it it kind of depends on how successful Project Despair is. Uh, I mean, Project Despair is basically keep it stringing out, uh, keep uh, the chaos to the maximum, 
and ensure that Labour Party members begin to despair. You know, they know it's unfair. They know Corbyn's doing his best, but they just decide it's not working. It can't work. You can't have leadership without the support of Parliamentary Party. What are we supposed to do? We better get somebody else instead, some sort of compromise candidate. And that's um, that only has to sort of affect uh, uh, maybe 10% of the party membership for it to tilt the balance, you know? Uh, so it's um, it, it's not impossible that they could uh, oust him. But yeah, I mean, at the moment, they are looking pretty clueless. They're vacillating between uh, claiming that they're going to stand someone against him, claiming that they don't have to stand someone against him because they can keep him off the ballot, claiming that actually he just wants to resign and his mean old staff are preventing him from doing so, but they're going to get him to resign. Um, you know, they, they, they are all over the place at the moment. Uh, so at the moment, I'm slightly inclined to thinking that he'll stick it out. And if he does, I have to say, the left will come out of it much stronger. The other possibility, I guess, and one you sort of talk about in your book as well, is a kind of decomposition of the political scene. And it sort of seemed like, you know, there at some point during this sort of hectic week, like there might be some kind of you know more move towards a split inside labor and all that yeah um maybe you could talk a bit about how this fits in with what's happening sort of on the continent and and what whether there's a sort of uh, instability to the two-party system that's been around for for a century basically and how sort of corbinite labor fits into this and what kind of forces you know would it accelerate the process of smaller parties that draw on smaller constituencies or is there a chance for Corbyn to actually you know deep pasokified labor um, and keep it as a sizable force on the left I think if you look at the reason why Britain doesn't have a radical left party like an equivalent to Syriza or Podemos or Delinka or De Front de Gauche or any of these organizations um, well one of the reasons is uh, the electoral system, which doesn't favor smaller parties, makes it very difficult. But a, a deeper reason is a structural reason. Um, and it's a historical and contextual reason, which is the British left and the labor movement in the 1980s underwent a far more traumatizing and deep going series of defeats than any other left wing and any other labor movement in the European continent. And it was comprehensive, uh, whether it was municipal socialism, the Greater London Council, um, uh, the militant councils, the uh, militant labour movement. Every quarter of leftist strength, every quarter of labour potency was smashed to pieces by the Thatcher administration. And the result was the most right wing leadership in social democracy anywhere in the world. Uh, and of course, that was led by Tony Blair. Now, at the start, that leadership had some attractive qualities for younger people who were sick to death of the cultural habits and the political habits of the old hard left, right? You could understand that. But the thing about it is, is that it also lowered expectations uh, to a very considerable extent, such that by the time they get into office, there's no space for any kind of crisis of expectations the main lines of policy are set such that even when Tony Blair disappoints people by adopting the agenda of his opponents, like private finance initiatives, uh, marketization of the public sector, all that stuff, uh, bashing welfare even, by the time he's doing that, 
there, there there's no disappointment, or at least there is disappointment, but no real crisis of expectations because people knew that he was leading a right-wing government. People knew that he was committed to free markets and low taxes for businesses. So there wasn't really any sort of stimulus for a split. People had been so crushed and demoralized over the years. They'd come to believe that Britain was such a right-wing country that Blair was the best they were going to get. So they put up with it. And rather than uh, having a, a recomposition or a re realignment of forces, what you saw was a hemorrhaging of the Labour Party's base. Members uh, drifting away, voters drifting away en masse. Um, there were a few small parties that tried to occupy this space to the left of social democracy. Socialist alliance, respect, left list, left unity, etc. None of them really got off the ground very much. So my point is that... By uh, 2015, there was only the Labour Party. I mean, people had experimented with the Greens, people had experimented with the Liberals. If you were in Scotland, you could vote for the Scottish Nationalists. But in England and Wales, the Labour Party was the unifying instance. They could draw people together. And Corbyn was the unique sort of personality by not being, uh, you know, a massive ego or anything like that. And by being broad enough and secular enough in his politics that he could draw in people who were Greens, who were tr recovering Trotskyists, who were old Labour, who were trade unionists, and fuse them all together in a big block. And that does mean that uniquely... Uh, and quite unexpectedly, there is a chance, and no more than that, that if the right wing were to split away, as they've been advertising that they would do, you would end up with quite a large Labour-based left-wing party with significant parliamentary representation. I mean, it would be bad in various ways because it would also mean that the electoral terrain in a first-past-the-post system would continue to be dominated by the right. But it would create a situation in which the left had far more power than it had previously had. Uh, so it's a strange situation. And it's coming out of weakness. In many ways, you have a very sort of long-term vision in the book. If these are all the sort of short-term challenges, then you, ha kind of, you know, have to look in a much longer term. Um, and, you know, if Corbyn's success isn't guaranteed, this you know, sort of a, at best the start of a kind of long march and not so much... Uh, you know, a march through the institutions. But I think, you know, you, you talk a lot about organizations like unions, grassroots movements and, and others kind of shaping a whole new ideology, really to be able to take this on in a kind of systematic way. How do the sort of short-term travails, even now, even taking into account the coup and the Brexit referendum um, and Corbyn, you know, in, in, in recent days, really trying to counterpose a kind of anti-xenophobic, anti-austerity vision, how does that fit into this sort of very long term and okay well that's always been a problem for corbyn because he has to balance several actually contradictory uh tasks uh working on several different timelines so you've got the short-term need to firefight to manage crises to have some sort of uh control over the headlines uh to manage news cycles, to keep the parliamentary party from disintegrating, to, to get some sort of shadow cabinet together and to make sure it works, to oppose the government on a day-to-day -day basis. All of that stuff um, is very short-term, and things that you need to do to keep that going are not the same sorts of things as you need to do to enthuse activists, to uh, build up uh, social movements, um, to... 
change fundamentally the ideology of the whole country, because changing the ideology of the country means you start by arguing from a minority position and you try to build a majority uh, that takes time. And it means you have to maybe put up with some election losses and some bad results. The interesting thing, actually, about Corbyn is that his election results haven't been anywhere near as dire as predicted. They haven't been brilliant, but uh, given the scale of crisis that Labour's in, they're okay. Um, So he's been uh, in that sort of position of trying to uh, do several different things, working on several different timelines. In a way, uh, one would think that the sensible thing would be to have a division of Labour. So... You can have Corbyn and MacDonald trying to uh, do the standard tasks of leadership, pushing it as far to the left as, as they can, which is not very far. I mean, the agenda they're talking about is Wilsonite, uh, you know, white heat of technology, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it's further than the mainstream is prepared to put up with. Um, and you could have the grassroots, the rank and file, uh, trying to push the argument further being willing to criticise the leadership from the left, going out into the communities and workplaces, winning the argument for radical change, winning the argument for taxing the rich, nationalising major industries, winning the argument for extensive um, public democratic control of the economy, uh, winning the argument against anti-immigrant racism, all of the things that Corbyn can only push so far in. Um, And that would, uh, you know, be a sensible way to handle it. My concern has always been that too much of the Labour left is deferential. Um, And that's in part just because it's very weak, uh, in part because the majority of its supporters are quite passive and they essentially look to Jeremy Corbyn to do things for them. Um, And so, you know, there's a reluctance to do anything that puts uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who they know is in a weak position, in any kind of difficulties. There's a reluctance to criticise him or make him look bad. And as understandable as that is, that is also a weakness for them because sometimes they, you know, will have to be willing to take a slightly more left stance than Corbyn is able to. Um, uh, To take some examples, if a local council, say it's a Labour council, decides to implement spending cuts, and they have to do this to set a legal budget. The, the, the laws are extremely severe. The government gives them a certain amount of money. They have to set a legal budget. Uh, they try to uh, set a budget that's not legal and, uh, you know, get into a huge deficit. Then they're in trouble. Jeremy Corbyn says, don't set an illegal budget. Work for a Labour government and we will reverse these policies. So put up with it for now. Well... The trouble with that is, is that if you uh, if local labor activists are seen to be going along with that, then they kind of start to lose a bit of credibility because, uh, you know, people will say, well, look, we've lost our library. We've lost our local parks. We've lost local communities. This has all happened under a labor government. You're telling us to vote labor and it's all the labor council that's implemented it. Uh, Surely you can't be in favor of this. So to some extent, it would make sense to have activists who are willing to go against the Labour Party leadership and be a bit more radical and push the argument further. Um, And that would be a a way of handling um, the discrepancies and the mutual contradictory tasks and different timelines on which they have to operate. That was Richard Seymour, author of Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics, on the Roots and Prospects of Corbynism in the UK. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.